0: Uh, we're talking about the prophets uh, of God, specifically prophets, in the uh, most of them in the Old uh, Testament. And today we come to one of the more interesting characters, I think, maybe in the entire Bible. His name is Elijah, one of the better-known prophets in Scripture. And today we're going to do a pretty good survey of his life, so I'm not going to waste a lot of t- upfront time here. But I do want to give you a little background. When you study the life of an individual it's always important to understand the backdrop of their life, the time in which they lived. A lot of you right now probably follow the level of unrest in the Middle East. Uh, It seems like year to year, the more things change, the more things stay the same in the Middle East. But if you think the unrest is uh, prevalent today in the Middle East, just listen for a moment what it was like leading up to this prophet Elijah. As a reminder, as probably most of you know from history, this nation of Israel was eventually split into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. And they would never again be one nation throughout the Old Testament. And the first king in the northern kingdom is a guy named Jeroboam. And he's afraid that the people are going to go down to uh, Jerusalem to worship God, that he's going to lose control of the people. So he kind of sets up idols in the northern kingdom in a place called Dan and Bethel. And he says to the people basically listen it's way too inconvenient to go all the way to jerusalem so i'm just going to set up the gods that brought you out of egypt here and he makes these golden calves and he leads people into idolatry jeroboam is the first king in the northern kingdom and if you read through the book of first and second kings in the old testament you will find out that there are 20 kings in the northern kingdom in fact there will be 20 kings in both the southern and the northern kingdom And in the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, there are kings. Every single one of them is evil. Every one of them. So finally, when Zimri dies, there's a civil war in the northern kingdom between two guys named Tibni and Omri. They're battling over who has the goofier name. (laughs) Omri wins, and the text says that he is the worst king so far in the northern kingdom. That brings us to this. 1 Kings chapter 16. Omri, the king, has died, and in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Things have reached a new low. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set an hour up for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So let's get the scene here. Ahab, the king, marries a pagan wife. The Sidonians lived in the northern kind of Mediterranean coast in an area called Phoenicia. His wife's name is Jezebel. You probably have heard of her. She becomes a major, major character in the life of Elijah. He more or less, Ahab does, puts his wife in charge in the northern kingdom of religion. And Jezebel, who is a Baal worshiper, adopts it as her agenda Her agenda to destroy the worship of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and to replace him with her God, Baal. We're told in 1 Kings that one of the ways that she carries this out is that, among other things, she is systematically killing off the prophets of the Lord. And this is kind of unprecedented because even in that time, the prophets had kind of like a diplomatic immunity. And when you read the Bible, you'll notice several stories involving prophets where the kings often couldn't stand them, but they would never think, ever think, that they would do any harm to the prophets. Jezebel, however, is quite different. She is murdering them in cold blood. And the situation has gotten so bad that you have to begin to wonder, how long is God going to let this go on? Well, the answer comes in 1 Kings chapter 17, And we're introduced to this amazing character, Elijah. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And kind of the meaning here is that there's a drought coming to the people, that God's judgment has come to the people of the northern kingdom. And the choice of a drought is very significant here. Because of one reason. Baal was regarded as the weather god of the people. And part of what's going on here is we're going to find out who is really the true God. Is it God, Yahweh God, or is it Baal, the prophet, uh, of, prophets of Baal, the ones that they worshipped, the one that Jezebel worshipped? And imagine the words that it takes for Elijah to say these words in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward and hide in the Carith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. God basically tells Elijah, go and hide. And Elijah says, you don't have to tell me twice, okay. <laughs> and there's a series of miracles in Elijah's life, and we're going to look at some of those in just a moment. God uses ravens to bring Elijah bread and meat twice a day. And he gives him water from the brook to drink. And when that eventually dries up, he sends Elijah to a widow. 1 Kings chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Now notice the place that it says to go. It says go to Zarephath of Sidon now let's see if you were paying attention earlier what woman is from Sidon you remember well Jezebel is a Sidonian and it's a striking thing there is Jezebel the queen and now there's this little woman the poorest of the poor the most vulnerable member of society she is a widow she would be the last person in the world anybody would think to ask for help She's not only from Jezebel's hometown, she's a pagan. And one of the beautiful things about God in the Old Testament is you always see these glimpses of God caring and helping those who are less fortunate. So Elijah comes to the and He says, "...will you please give me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? And also, would you please bring me a piece of bread?" And in verse 12, it says, As surely as the Lord your God lives. Now notice she says, As surely as the Lord your God lives. Not my God, she says. As surely as the Lord your God lives. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar. And a little oil in a jug. I am gathering sticks to take home. And make a meal for myself and my son. listen, that we may eat it and die. She is literally down to her last supper. And Elijah comes along and he says, hey, will you feed me? Before you feed you and your son, will you take care of me? Now listen to Elijah's response. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have here and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. And the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on this land. Now the key phrase here is in verse 13. Where he says, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But before you make yourself and your son a meal, will you make me a meal? And if you will do that, Elijah says, God is going to take care of you. Now here's what I would have said if I were that widow. I would have said, tell you what. Let God go first. I tell you what, let God fill up the jug (laughs) of oil and the jug of water, and then I'll make you something to eat, Elijah. But that is not the question here. The question is, will you trust me with what you have in your hand right now? Now, I want you to understand how important this truth is to our life, friends. This is a truth that all of us in this room are going to wrestle with. If you will not trust God with what you have right now, I promise you, you will not trust him when you have more. More never by itself builds trust. This is the way people think in this world. They think this way. People say, you know, when I finally get out of debt, or I finally hit the lotto, or when I get that better promotion or as soon as I get to a certain income level, then I'm going to help people. I'm going to give generously to God and to people in need. But listen, that day never comes, friends, because if you don't trust him now, I promise you, you will not trust him when you have more. It's just the way life works. This is why one of the statements that Elijah makes is such an amazing one in First Kings Watch what happens here. It says she went away. Talking about the widow. And did as Elijah had told her. Now this is a woman with one son. And she takes. Whatever flour, Whatever oil. Whatever um, uh, utensils that she had left. Whatever resources she had. And during a drought. She dumps it out. She's going to make a meal for Elijah. And I'm going to tell you what. I'd have been tempted to make. Elijah a really 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 small meal (laughs) I mean here's a cracker (laughs) Elijah but she makes a meal for Elijah and she has nothing left and she knows that if God Yahweh doesn't act her son and her are going to die and Elijah says to her go look in the jar And she looks and the jar is full And she uses it that day. And the next morning she goes back and she looks in the jar and it's full again. And she uses it that day. And she goes back the next morning and the next morning and the next morning. And every day, one day at a time, that jar is full. And I can only imagine what she thought. What if I had said no to trusting God? What if I had said no to giving God what I have in my hand right now? Later on, interesting enough, this woman's son dies. And it says in verse 18 to Elijah, she says to him, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She's kind of wondering, is God some kind of cruel, cruel being without any mercy? And because Elijah's there, did God kill her son just to kind of get her back for whatever pagan sins she had committed? But the text is beautiful here. It says Elijah prays and again God sees this little impoverished woman. And another miracle happens and her son is restored. And this woman comes to believe in the one true God of Israel. And at the end of chapter 17 she says a statement. Listen to this statement about Elijah. It says, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And this is an amazing introduction to this man, Elijah. And now we're going to move to the story that most people, most people know Elijah and they understand his life was really about. This is the story that most people kind of connect to Elijah. And if you'll notice, before we jump into this, something happens in the Old Testament and people often ask about this. They'll say, why are miracles not evenly distributed throughout the Bible? I mean, there are certain points When it seems like miracles seem to come in bunches, like in the Exodus when Moses led the people out of Israel, and Robbie talked about Moses last week, there were ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and manna and quail and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down and there's all these miracles. And then you go through the era of the judges and it seems like there's fewer miracles And then you come to guys like Elijah and Elisha, and there's this whole bunch of miracles. And then later on, there's fewer miracles. And then you get to Jesus and Pentecost, and it seems like there's miracles everywhere. I mention this because some people think that your life is supposed to be a string of miracles, one after the other. But apparently that is not the case. Now, we don't always know exactly why, but it seems to be that at key moments in the process of Revelation where God wants to develop the faith of his people, it seems like there's more miracles that happen. I bring this up because what we're going to talk about right now is crucial. In the era of Elijah, the worship of God is being threatened by the worship of Baal. The issue of idolatry, which had always been a problem in Israel, is coming to a crisis point. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called The Tipping Point, Point*, and this is the way you can kind of see. This is the tipping point for Israel. This is the tipping point whether they will worship God, whether they will serve God, or whether they're going to follow false idols. In fact, when you look at the name Elijah, it's an awesome name because it literally means the Lord is God. That's exactly what Elijah's name means. And that's really his mission, to let people know that the Lord really is the one true God. So we come to a battle in 1 Kings 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Now this is not exactly the mission Elijah was hoping for. I think he's kind of like, well, couldn't I go back to like the the ravens and the brook and the water and all this? And God says, no, Elijah, go to Ahab. Now think about this meeting. Think about this meeting between this evil king and this prophet of God. When Ahab saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your family's fa- father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands, have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent the word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now I want you to imagine this scene. This is an incredible scene. The whole country is gathering. On one side stands 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. On this side stands one king and a queen who have all the power and authority of the government. On this side stands all the people who have the freedom to do whatever they want. Remember, there's no Ten Commandments on this side there's no law on this side saying you have to care for aliens and orphans and widows there is no call to be devoted to god and to your neighbor it's just idolatry sexual pleasure it's all part of material abundance that's on one side on the other side of mount carmel is one solitary prophet who comes out of hiding For years he was hiding to confront one king and one queen and a country to say there is one true God. This is remarkable. The people are assembled. All the prophets stand on Mount Carmel. And Elijah comes to the people. Elijah went before them and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord your God... Is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Now, this is so incredible to me because the people, the people don't think that they've rejected Yahweh. They don't really think they've rejected the God of Israel. They pray to him when nothing else works. What they've done is they've just added Baal on top of God, they've just decided they'll worship both of them. And the word translated waver here literally means to hobble or to limp along. That's really what they're saying here is you're just kind of limping along in life following two different gods. Now here's the application. Here's the life application. One of the things that life will try to get us to do is not to deny or denounce God. But just to put other things equal and... In his place, it could be a lifestyle, it could be a habit, it could be some other idol that you just can't let go of, it could be pride or power, it could be your insistence to have your own way. And what we tell ourselves is that we can kind of hang on to this little bell and we can still hang on to Yahweh God, but you can't. Elijah said it himself. He said, you can't waver forever. You've got to decide which one you're going to serve. Jesus would later say, no one can serve two masters. And so one man stands before them, defiant. Time to choose. And he just waits for the people to respond. How long will you waver? And the verse says, but the people said nothing. It is dead silent. We don't even know how long they stood there silent. Some of them probably are sullen. Some are defiant. Some are confused. Some of them are thinking, why should I have to choose Elijah? Doggone it, this life is working for me. I mean, Bell we me follow my own agenda. Yahweh is powerful enough that when I need him, I call on him. And I thought about this week, how, how sad the silence must have been to God. After all he had done for the people, after all he had done for Israel, nobody stands up. Finally, Elijah says to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces And put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, Baal. And I will call on the name of my God, Jehovah, Yahweh, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. (laughs) And what Elijah is doing here is he's making things really hard for Yahweh. And the reason I say that, because remember, Baal was the god of what? The weather. He is always pictured in ancient manuscripts as having lightning bolts in his hand. So you would think that fire would kind of be a piece of cake for Baal. So the prophets of Baal took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. This is kind of cool. First the people were silent. And now Baal is silent. And Elijah wants to make sure that everybody kind of understands the absurdity of what's going on. So he kind of engages in what we're going to call a little prophetic trash talk. I don't know if you ever played pickup basketball. There's a lot of trash talk on a basketball court. And in verse 27, Elijah says this. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is in deep thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. Now this passage is a little difficult to translate. But he's kind of using humor and sarcasm to try to show people... How ridiculous it is to pray to a God who isn't even there. In the Living Bible, which some people think is maybe one of the best translations, it translates Elijah's words like this He says, You'll have to shout louder than that to catch the attention of your God. Maybe he's talking to someone or out sitting on the toilet. That's really what it says. Maybe your God has DADD, like Divinity Attention Deficit Disorder. (laughs) Well, the prophets of Baal don't have a lot of sense of humor. And they take Elijah seriously, and they try harder to get Baal's attention. It says they shouted and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And finally Elijah just says, let's just put an end to this. He calls the people over. He carefully prepares the altar. And he takes 12 stones, and this is a very significant number, 12 stones, basically representing one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's trying to remind the people who they really are as a nation. And Elijah does something very interesting. He arranges the wood. He cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he says, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water literally flowed around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. This is what this reminds me. Have you ever been to a magician's show? A magic show? And you notice how magicians always have like a big illusion. Like their major illusion. And they'll always kind of add something. And they'll just keep adding something to make it more unbelievable and more exciting. And like more supernatural. They want people to really be wild by it. And it kind of looks like this is what Elijah's doing. He pours water, not on just the ox once, but twice. And then the third time. And then, if that weren't enough, he pours water around the trench. And then he prays. And this is a beautiful thing to me. As opposed to the wild and crazy screaming and hollering the prophets of Baal are doing. Elijah prays. I want to say this. Sometimes Christians pray more like they're the prophets of Baal than they are Elijah. And they think they have to pray loud enough or strong enough or long enough. But Elijah just calmly says these words. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Immediately, the text says, fire fell. And Elijah has the largest outdoor barbecue in the history of Mount Garmel. A 60-word prayer. And God sends fire down and burns up the sacrifice. And not just that, but the wood and the stones and the soil. And it licks up every drop of water around that trench. And the people cry out. Listen to what they say. The Lord, he is God. Anybody remember what Elijah's name was? The Lord is God. I don't know if anybody has ever experienced the run that Elijah experienced. The manifestation of the power of God over and over and over again in his life. But what's most amazing to me about this prophet's life is not just his courage. And it's not just these miracles. And it's not just uh, his tenacity. And it's not just his relationship with God. But maybe the most interesting thing to me is what happens after he calls down fire from heaven. He experiences this unbelievable run of power and victory. But as we close today, I want you to see the last kind of scene in Elijah's story. The old saying goes, what goes up must come down. Listen to what happens. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. How he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel... The queen sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Huh? Elijah, who defied a king, who defeated 450 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of Asherah, who took on an entire nation single-handedly, who survived by ravens at a brook, who resuscitated the dead son of a widow, is now running from one woman? (laughs) This turnabout is so dramatic that some scholars are actually convinced that the story must be out of place in Scripture. I'm not so sure it is, and I'll tell you why. Because I think this is the way life works. I think that nobody stays on the mountaintop forever. Nobody always has an upward trajectory in their life. You're going to have spiritual peaks and spiritual valleys in your life. And sometimes it's after the most, maybe amazing, unbelievable, record-setting run of achievement that you find yourself vulnerable to fear and depression and doubt. Listen to how low he goes. When Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a juniper tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Any parents in here ever hear their kids say, ever said to your kids, I've had just about enough? You ever said that? Wise children do not say, would you like a little bit more? Right? When you hear that, you know that a human being is about to the point where they're going to snap. Well, Elijah's made it to that point. And he just says, God, just let me die. And this is the beautiful thing about God. God sometimes loves you so much that he doesn't answer your prayers. Instead, God says, let me send you an angel. He lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around. There by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And God kind of treats Elijah the way you kind of treat a cranky (laughs) two-year-old. He just says, here's some Twinkies, some juice. Go back to bed. That's what you do with people when they're depressed. They won't eat. You got to feed them. You got to take care of them. And then Elijah gets up, and it's repeated again. And then he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horab, the mountain of God. And then it says that Elijah goes into a cave, and he spends the night in the cave. And in verse 9, then the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is such a great verse. We don't have time to go into it. But Elijah had basically traveled all the way from the north, Jezreel. All the way to the southern kingdom. And when he hit Beersheba. He was safe from Jezebel. He was away from her. But instead of stopping there. He actually leaves. And goes further south. Outside of the southern kingdom. And now he's literally left his post. As a prophet of God. And God comes to him. And says. What are you doing here Elijah? You ever had that happen? ever looked at your life and go, what am I doing here? How did I get here? And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now that's awesome. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm sure he could have offered a lot of complaints. And the question is, what is God going to do? with Elijah. Well, he did exactly with Elijah what he's going to do with all of you. And that is, he is not going to give up on you. The Lord says to him in verse 15, and we'll close with this, go back, Elijah, the way you came. And God does something so awesome here for Elijah. He gives him a new assignment, a new mission. He sends him back to actually train another prophet, his protege, Elijah, Elisha. He kind of recommissions Elijah and gives him a purpose...